We have so much to be thankful for, including the privilege of gathering together like we are here on this Lord's Day morning and being led and encouraged through worship and song. So thankful for Dave Crawford and James Killian and Cora and Leroy for leading us in those amazing songs this morning that are so filled with truth. I don't know about you, but when I sing, I am most moved by songs that help me to frame up what I know into an act of worship to the God who saved me. There are a lot of songs out there today that go by the name of Christian that are primarily laments over the personal circumstances that individuals are facing, songs about us, songs about our condition, songs about our emotions, songs about our disappointments. But I'm thankful that when we choose to gather and we choose to engage in worship and song, we want to sing songs that talk about the greatness of the gospel. Amen? What do I know? What do I say? What do I cling to? What do I remind myself of in the midst of a world that is so filled with temptations and with failures and with messages that would cause me, were I not anchored to the truth of the gospel, to doubt the goodness and the grace and the mercy of a loving God? You know, it wasn't always easy for churches to gather together and do what we just did because for many years, under the control of the Roman Catholic Church, the true gospel was held captive and the word of God was kept from the people because it wasn't in their language. In our seminar, we've been studying this in the first hour, and one of the things that we talked about this morning was the fact that when Martin Luther was reforming the churches in what we know of as Germany today, much of the time the people would gather together and they would still be going through many of the same similar rituals to what they had done during the time of the Roman Catholic Church because there was no such thing as a Protestant church yet. Luther was still reforming, he thought, the church that existed. It wasn't until many years later that entirely new churches were formed because of the resistance of the Roman Catholic hierarchy to, to bend to Scripture. So when we gather together here and we sing these songs, we are to be thankful for the faithfulness of those who, through many trials and persecutions, and with much patience, unfolded for us a way of gathering that is consistent with what the Bible really teaches and not trapped in a medieval system of works. But that medieval system of works is merely a reflection of every system of works that has existed to try to cloud the real gospel from view. And whether you're talking about 15th century Germany or first century Israel, it was the same problem. In the same way that Luther had to work hard to reform what was going on in the churches in Germany, the Apostle Paul is writing to churches trying to reform them out of their desire to go back to a burdensome system under the control of the Jews of those days. You hold in your hand the letter that Paul wrote to the Romans. I read to you a portion of a letter that was written by Martin Luther to his friend Philip Melanchthon. He says this, quote, be a sinner and let your sins be strong. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning with our simple appeal to be instructed from your word to be changed by it, to be conformed into the image of your Son through it, to be lifted up to the heights of glory as we consider the reality of the gospel and what we had just sung earlier. Just the, just the intensity of our own sinfulness and the great glory of the hope that it has all been paid for once and for all in Christ. 
And uh, if there's people here today that have either never fully understood that, <clears throat> embraced it, or if there are people that struggle with that because they think that your love for them ebbs and flows based on their external performance, may today be a day that it radically transforms them into those who truly not only believe the gospel, not only believe the gospel, but love it. Amen. So I just read that one line to you earlier because um, I wanted to get your attention. So I hope I did, <laughs> based on the, what I saw from some of you reacting. So I'm going to read the context now. Listener discretion is advised, though, because it still might surprise you what he says. August 1st, 1521, Luther is in Wartburg Castle being kept safe after the Diet of Worms, or Diet of Worms, as you may have heard it said, actually leading up to that. But he says this in a letter that he wrote to Philip Melanchthon. Here's the context. He says, if you are a preacher of mercy, do not preach an imaginary, but true mercy. If the mercy is true, you must therefore bear the true, not an imaginary sin. God does not save those who are only imaginary sinners. Be a sinner and let your sins be strong. But let your trust in Christ be stronger and rejoice in Christ who is the victor over sin, death, and the world. We will commit sins while we are here, for this life is not a place where justice resides. We, however, says Peter in 2 Peter 3.13, are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where justice will reign. It suffices that though God's, that through God's glory, we have recognized the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. No sin can separate us from Him. Even if we were to kill or commit adultery thousands of times each day. Do you think such an exalted lamb paid merely a small price with a meager sacrifice for our sins? Pray hard, for you are quite a sinner. I'd say that to us as well this morning. Pray hard, for you are quite a sinner. This is more important, I think, than we realize because we live in a day and age where people are tempted because of their external relative goodness to come in even to a church service like this thinking that the gospel was merely an assistance to move them from generally good to good enough. And no matter how good we think we are and no matter how good we might be relative to other people's goodness, our wickedness, if we were to really understand it, is so infinitely shocking and disturbing and, and utterly pervasive that we would never again view the sacrifice that Christ made for us as anything but beyond our comprehension. That His exalted sacrifice, the price He paid was not small, it was not meager, not merely because he paid it for all who would believe, but because he paid it for you personally. And your personal sins are so unbelievably great. And, and so as we, as we think about this today, I'm going to invite you into this text with me. And this is not going to be a very good sermon because sermons are supposed to be really well structured and there's supposed to be some effort at oratory, but clearly that's not going to happen today. So um, lower your expectations. I'm just going to 
invite you into this and may it affect you such that you are moved by the reality of these things. Because I believe that the gospel of grace, grace alone, properly understood, will encourage you to admit that you are far worse than you let on and to trust that God is far more gracious than you could ever imagine. And no matter how great the sin, and for some of us the sin has been great. Some of us are exemplary sinners. We're we're, we're sinners to be ranked. Some of us are virtually Olympians in sin. And we're not alone. Paul calls himself the chief of sinners. But with the awareness of the magnitude of our sin and sinning, I think it's important to remind us that no matter how great the sin, the grace is greater. And the greater the sin, the greater the victory over that sin did Christ accomplish on the cross. That leads us to a question. Can circumstances, even ones of our own making, overrule the promises of God? And can His everlasting covenant be broken? Is it possible for his chosen people and any nation in general to derail the plan of salvation? That's the question. Who's responsible for this? Who's responsible for the unfolding of redemptive history? Who's responsible for the arc of redemptive history from creation through the fall, through redemption and through restoration or through the consummation of all things for his glory? Who's in charge of that? And that's the question that Paul is asking in all of Romans 9 and 10 and 11. And we have emphasized the fact that it is from these chapters that much of the Reformation doctrines of sola scriptura, of scripture alone, and also of faith alone, and grace alone, and Christ alone, and the glory of God alone, this is where they come from, is understanding who's responsible and who's in charge. And so Paul asks the question and will answer it, and he uses the doctrine of the grace of God to help us. Grace and grace alone are the theme of Romans chapter 11. So if you're looking for a big picture theme for the next three weeks, which is, well, four weeks that will be in Romans chapter 11, it'll be the theme of grace. There is no greater joy than to preach on grace. And as those words come out of my mouth, I think I need to stop saying there's no greater joy than to preach on something when I keep giving a different answer to what that is, because evidently whatever I'm thinking about at that moment is the greatest thing. But right now, grace is the greatest thing. There's nothing greater than grace. Before that, there was nothing greater than faith, and then there was nothing greater than, anyway, grace. Grace is the theme. Romans 11, verses 1 to 10, it was read for you earlier This morning, what I'd like to show you through these verses is the extent, the application, and the opposite of grace. The extent, the application, and the opposite of grace. Let's begin by looking at the extent of grace. Paul opens up this section with these words. I I ask then, is God rejected his people? And then he answers it right away, by no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. There is a condition in the statement. He he has not rejected his people, condition whom he foreknew. That's that's the key that will unlock the understanding of the extent of grace relative to the people of God from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation as part of his plan from the beginning of redemptive history all through to its consummation. So, please note that. 
But backing up to the beginning, he says this, to reject is to push away. So he says, has God rejected his people? It's the word we get the English word apostasy from. Has he, has he shoved them away? And the answer is no, he has not. And Paul is a living example of that. There are some Jews who are coming to faith in the gospel who understood that he is the Messiah, Paul being one of them. Not because he was led to that conclusion by studying the law, and not because he was guided there through the religious practices of the Jews in those days, but because of God's sovereign grace bursting into his life, knocking him off his horse while he was on his way to kill Christians. Paul was not seeking God when God found him. He is an Israelite. This is a phrase that was used most often to describe the Jewish people of God, the ones who had really believed and understood, the ones who had the gospel laid out for them in all the Old Testament scriptures looking forward to the coming of Messiah. Nathaniel was called a true Israelite, somebody in whom there is no deceit. A true Israelite was an Israelite who understood that Jesus was the Messiah. But not only that, he is also of the seed of Abraham. He's a naturally born Jew. And he is also of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was the youngest of Jacob's sons. He was the one who was described as a warrior. From him came the first king of Israel, King Saul. No doubt Paul, remember, whose name was Saul, may have been named after that very person. So he is saying, I am a Jew, if there was ever one to make the statement. But he says this of those Jews, the ones that had not been rejected are not the Jews as a whole, are not the Jews as a nation, not the Jews as an ethnic group, but the Jews that were foreknown the foreknown Jews. They're the ones that have not been rejected. Even though it was going to get very bad for them, in fact, by 70 AD, Jerusalem is destroyed, the temple is destroyed, everything that even resembled Jewish law and order and religion was decimated and ground to dust, even though it was going to get very, very bad for them, just a few years after Paul wrote this, and even though the people were going to be scattered, and even though they've lost their entire religious system, and even though their city was destroyed, and over a million of them were annihilated, God says, I've not rejected you. Even though you are an apostate nation, even though you have rejected my Messiah, I am going to remain faithful to my promise to a particular people, namely those that I have foreknown. He can harden and he can condemn the nation of Israel and still rescue his elect out of that nation. That nation is hard today. That nation is rejecting God today. That nation has no distinct privilege in the eyes of God today. The nation state of Israel created in 1948 is not, I believe, a fulfillment of any prophecies in the Bible. It was merely a way for human politicians to distribute land after the war if they were to be driven off that land, it would not compromise God's promise to his covenant people one bit. When you look at the actual prophecies and promises made to the nation of Israel, what they are experiencing today is nothing even remotely close to what God has promised for them. So God can reject them. He can do all of this while still rescuing his elect out of it. He can turn his back on that nation. He uses the phrase divorce them in the Bible without losing a single person that has been given to him from before the foundation of the world by his father. And even though the very belief, even though very few of them believe the gospel, there are still some that he foreknew and they will put their trust in him. That's the key. The extent here of his grace is extended to those whom he foreknew, not just to those who had a Jewish lineage, not just to those who were the seed of Abraham or even of the tribe of Benjamin. His grace, which is the topic of the chapter, is extended to those whom he foreknew, regardless of their lineage. 
Simply put, it refers to an intimate knowledge beforehand. It's what foreknowledge means, to know beforehand. We can go back and look at Romans 8 and verse 29. We studied it not too long ago. In the order of salvation, he says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. He foreknew. Before they had done anything good or evil, not based on any choice that they would ever make in the future, he simply reaches out and he foreknows and he chooses and he elects and he predestines and then he saves and he sanctifies and he will glorify. And that's the entire emphasis in the chapter. So there are no surprises, no discoveries, no learning on the part of God. Never. He is omniscient. He knows everything that there is to know. It means that the Jews who didn't believe were simply the ones who were never chosen in the first place. God already knew who would reject him and who would remain faithful based on his sovereign plan. Now, this is an opportunity to unpack a little theology. Now, normally I don't get into this, as you know, but Today would be an appropriate day for it because it's presented right before us. Something that we probably have discussed in the past or you've heard about in the past, and that is this debate between Calvinists and Arminians. If you're not familiar with this debate, just zone out for a little bit. I'll let you know when we're done. You can join us again when we're talking about the Bible. It was back in um, January of 1610 when 46 pastors and two professors had a meeting with the leaders of the Dutch Reformed Church and explained that there were some teachings within the church that they disagreed with. And they presented a paper, essentially, that had five points to it. It was called the Remonstrance. Now, that's just a long word for issues. They had issues that they wanted to talk with the leaders about. And when they presented this paper, it was to the other Dutch theologians. And so this whole debate between Calvinists and Arminians is actually an intramural debate between Dutch theologians. So unless you have a real deep fascination in Dutch theology, a lot of this probably isn't even something you need to be worried about. But let's just say for interest sake, you do have some friend who likes to talk about these matters. Now you can have some historical background to understand where it comes from. They presented these five arguments, and they were basically this. Number one, they didn't like the teaching that election was unconditional. They believed in conditional election, that God chose you because of something you did first. They took this word foreknowledge to mean that God fast-forwarded the tape of your life, saw that by your own free will you would choose to believe the gospel, and therefore, in response to your choice, chose you. The second argument was that of the atonement. They believe that Christ obtained on the cross actual reconciliation for all of humanity. And that those who did not put their faith in Christ simply died without ever taking advantage of that available forgiveness and reconciliation that had been paid for in full and instead would go to hell to pay the price a second time, this time on their own. The third argument they made was that of total depravity. They argue that man cannot do the will of God or save himself. Now, some of you might say, wait a minute, I think you misspoke because total depravity is the T in TULIP, and that's the one that we're supposed to say they don't believe. Well, in reality, they did believe it. Nobody ever debated the depravity of man. The only people who did that were the Pelagians, and they were condemned as heretics, and then the semi-Pelagians, which had the Roman Catholic theology. Protestants didn't struggle with the depravity of man. So if you think your Arminian friend doesn't believe in the depravity of man, he's not basing it on anything that the Remonstrants wrote. 
Thirdly, fourthly, they taught something called prevenient grace or enabling grace. Not grace that is irresistible, but a grace that basically cooperates with God. God gives us grace so that we can cooperate with him out of our own good intentions and eventually obtain forgiveness and reconciliation. And then finally, conditional preservation. This was the idea that people could lose their salvation. In fairness, again, to the people that presented this back in 1610, they were unsure about it. They said, we're debating this. It's not clear to us. It wasn't until 1621 that they actually codified their view that you could lose your salvation in the confession that they wrote. So if we were to go back and look at the original sources of this debate, there were really only three areas of contention. I'm not going to put total depravity in there. I'm not going to put whether or not you can lose your salvation. I don't know anyone who argues, even my Arminian friends, don't argue that people are not depraved. And I don't know any living person who actually believes that you can lose your salvation. I've met one person in my 20 years of ministry, one person in my 10 years here in North County, one guy who used to go to our church, we'll call him Mike, um, since his name was Mike. And, and, and Mike left the church, and he called me up one day to tell me that, and I said, why are you leaving? And he said, well, I don't believe your theology. And I said, what about? And he said, well, I don't believe your teaching that you can't lose your salvation. And I said, do you really believe you can lose your salvation? He said, well, I'm not really sure I can lose my salvation, but I'm pretty sure that I can unsave myself. Well, that's the closest I've ever come to somebody who actually believed this doctrine. The rest of them are what typically we debate. The grace of God the extent of the atonement, and then whether or not election is conditional or not. So, at the end of this debate, which by the way had nothing to do with Calvin or Luther, or I'm sorry, had nothing to do with Calvin or Arminius because both of the men were dead before the debate began. Calvin had been dead for 35 years. Arminius had already been worm food for a year. None of this involved the two of them. It involved their followers. Their followers brought this up. So the Arminian followers brought this up. The reformers in the Dutch church responded with what we know of as those five points of Calvinism. Now, when you think of the five points of Calvinism, you think of a flower, don't you? What flower is that? The tulip. When you think of Arminianism, you also think of a flower, don't you? No? The daisy. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. So in response to these five arguments or protestations, they came up with this clever tulip, which standed for total depravity, which as I said earlier, was not even a debate evidently based on the original documents. The unlimited or unconditional election, meaning you were chosen not based on anything that you have done. And they got that from the same place that we would, which is from the word of God in Romans eight and nine as we studied it limited or particular atonement, meaning that Christ died for those whom the Father had given him, not just died for everyone and paid every person's sin penalty in full, and therefore all of this unused merit of his just evaporates when those people choose not to believe the gospel. The irresistible grace they responded with, saying that no, grace in fact is irresistible, that when God chooses to save somebody, draw them to himself in saving faith, you cannot resist that. He is the one who is in charge of salvation. Paul being a great example of that. Paul was not wooed along by Christ into believing, was he? He was certainly imposed upon. And then finally, the perseverance of the saints, which as we said earlier, doesn't really seem to be an issue for most people. Very few that I know, and I'm sure very few you know, really believe that a genuine believer can lose their salvation. Well, I bring this up because so much of it is centered around the very issue of foreknowledge. Back to our text, Paul explains to those who are confused about what's going on in the Jewish nation that his foreknowledge is what separates those who will believe from those who don't. The extent of grace extends to those whom the Lord foreknew and chose and will redeem. He guarantees it. Now look at the application. This is our second 
point, the application of grace. This continues on in verse 2. Do you not know what the scriptures say of Elijah? He uses Elijah now as an example. He gives an illustration. And you remember what happened here with Elijah. This comes from 1 Kings 19. Elijah has um, been called upon God to challenge the prophets of Baal, or Baal, as you might hear him described. And he calls all of them up to Mount Carmel, remember? And they make an altar, and they're to ask their God, Baal, to call down fire. And Elijah says, I'll do the same. Nothing happens when they try, but Elijah does, and the fire comes down from heaven. It consumes the altar. It consumes the sacrifice, consumes the water in the moat that was around it. And then, and then Elijah d- does what any uh, kind, gracious man of God does, and he just slaughters all the prophets, brings them all down to the base of the mountain, 400 of them, and just kills them all in a mass slaughter. Now, in... Um, 1 Kings 19, when Ahab finds out about this, Ahab the wicked king, Ahab the wicked king goes and tells Jezebel his wicked wife. And uh, it doesn't really seem like Elijah's all that concerned about Ahab, but man, when Jezebel got involved, then things got really, really difficult. And believe it or not, this very man of God, Elijah, this prophet, this one who had seen God provide for him in so many ways, was in utter terror over what Jezebel would do to him. And when Elijah is particularly low and feeling sorry for himself, he cries out to God on more than one occasion in in 1 Kings 19, and he says this, Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. I'm all alone. There's nobody left. I'm the only faithful one. I'm the only prophet. Everyone else has abandoned you. Everybody else has gone the way of the world. I'm completely alone. And God corrects his prophet. And he says to him, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Fascinating, isn't it? He's told that there are 7,000 who have been preserved, 7,000 who were chosen, 7,000 who were foreknown before Elijah was even born. You see, this is God's pattern all throughout redemptive history. You don't know who he's got set aside because you don't know whom he's foreknown. That is something that resides in the very counsel of the Godhead itself. And so he says, I've set these people apart. I have foreknown these, 7,000 of them. So, verse 5, at the present time, there is a remnant, this is how he describes them, and then notice it, a remnant chosen by grace. Literally, elect or according to election. There are 7,000 who are set apart according to the election of grace. But, verse 6, and this is not a contrast, this is to say logically following, but logically following, based on being chosen by grace, based on the foreknowledge of God, based on the fact that these were preserved even though you couldn't tell, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. If there was anything that these 7,000 had done, to earn their election, then it wouldn't be by grace. Grace is not something that is conditional. If it is based on anything other than grace, it is not grace. We go back to that letter that Luther wrote Melanchthon. He is saying, if you're going to be a preacher of mercy, then preach the full great mercy of God. He is merciful not just in offering forgiveness, but He is merciful in giving forgiveness and grace to those whom He has given the faith to believe the gospel that in turn redeems them and restores them without any work or expectation put upon them. Preach the full, gracious gospel. Don't preach some half gospel that says, oh, there's grace, but it's a grace 
that is only a prevenient grace. It's only an enabling grace. It's just a grace that kind of jumpstarts you so that you can make it the rest of the way to God on your own. He says, abandon all of those misunderstandings of grace. Grace alone. No condition. No works on your part. The minute you introduce works to grace, you destroy it. You completely destroy it. And yet, adding stuff to grace is what we do because we don't like grace. When I say we don't like grace, what I mean is that we don't like to be beholding to somebody else entirely. We like to be able to think that we've contributed at least a little bit, at least a little bit of merit. We like to be able to think that, well, but we did our part. Thank you for pointing the way, but it, it was me who actually made the decision. And Paul is saying to just remove from our thinking anything that has to do with a contribution to grace. It is applied to us perfectly and completely and without any expectation for anything in return for those who were foreknown and elect, predestined, justified, sanctified, glorified. Amen? May you have a big grace complex. Paul says to the Corinthian church that they ought to bring some level of control into their lives because they were living out this idea that they will just sin more and more in order that more and more grace may abound. They had such a big concept of grace that they were just sinning. I mean, they were obeying what Luther said to Melanchthon long before Luther said it to Melanchthon. They were sinning boldly. And Paul warns them that a bold, reckless disregard for holiness does not reflect an understanding of grace. So he is not saying, oh, because of the greatness of grace, go out there and sin as much as you like because the more you sin, the more grace you'll have. That, that was the temptation of some who had that view. Let me tell you something, church. I, I, don't, I don't see that as our problem here. I really don't. Most of you don't go out there sinning recklessly that grace may abound. It's just not. You're not that group. You're the other group. You're the other group that, that, that doesn't maybe see enough of grace and can be burdened, even crippled, by what you do sometimes when you sin. Sometimes so overwhelmed by your sin, so shocked, so disappointed, so crushed, that you curse yourself with curses. You bring upon yourself a wrath of your own making, and you actually make light of the grace of God that saved you. And what that does, may I just, may I just help you with this a little bit, I believe what that does over time is it inoculates you against the greatness of grace and also gives you a false sense of your own righteousness. So two things. It inoculates you against the greatness of grace. You, you lose sight of how great grace is, and you run the risk of thinking more of yourself than you should because on your best day, you're still incredibly wretched. Now, I mean that with love. But it's true. I mean, we are on our best day, on our most sanctified day, on our day when we are just a step away from sainthood. I mean, everything went well. We got up right on time with only happy thoughts, read our Bible, prayed, evangelized the person at the coffee shop on the way in, didn't say a mean word to our spouse, never complained about our children, didn't have an evil thought. Worked hard and diligently to the glory of God from the time we got started until the time we laid down our head and we thought, wow, I had such a great day. I had like a virtually no sin today. On a day like today, on a day like that, we're just as wicked and wretched as on the day when everything goes bad. 
Because your depravity, that total depravity that I talked about, which, hey, good thing, both Calvinists and Arminians agree on, that total depravity is going to linger with you until the day you're glorified. So if you don't understand grace, you're going to think too much of yourself. But you're also not going to think enough of the righteousness of Christ because the only righteousness that is going to be evaluated is his righteousness. And it never changes. He never has good days and bad days. And if you're a believer, it covers you. You're clothed in it. And therefore, your position before him never changes. No matter how righteous you are or unrighteous you are. So may we have a big grace concept. May it infuse everything that we say and do and believe. And may it be understood, not as a tool that can be used to comfort our hearts while we sin, but as a majestic truth that comforts us when we do, knowing that the righteousness that we ever produce will not be what we are evaluated on, but only that of Christ. That's the application of grace, specifically as it applies to this section. Because so too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Same applies to us. But if it is grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. And that's good news for Jewish prophets confronted with the temptation to worship Baal. It's also good news for you. It's good news for any follower of Christ who is tempted to believe that his works are the basis of God's love and acceptance of you. Release yourself from that. The third point is the opposite of grace. We've seen the extent of grace, the application of grace. Now we have to look into the opposite of grace, and this won't be long. Let me just explain it to you. Verse 7, what then? Paul asks a question. And what's interesting, you know, is Paul asks the question, then he gives the answer very quickly, and he's not continuing the question. If I read this, sometimes it sounds like Paul is continuing the question. So let me just read it to you that way so you understand what I mean. He is not saying, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking? It's not a second question. It's actually an answer. He just goes right into it. So, what then? That's the question. And then here's the answer. The answer to the question, what then, is that Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. Israel failed. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. In that answer, Paul says that only the elect obtained what Israel was seeking. The nation as a whole did not. The religious system certainly did not. But because God made an eternal covenant with his people, some did. And the differentiation between the Jews who did and the Jews who didn't was not good works, but was their election, was grace. And those who did not receive the grace were hardened in their disbelief. It doesn't matter that you are a Jew. What matters is that you're a child of God. There are no ethnic or racial limitations. And in order to prove his point, lest there be somebody who says, well, how is it possible that if God chose the nation of Israel, some of them would not believe? The answer is that he hardened them in their unbelief. And we're going to understand why in the coming weeks. I'm going to give you a preview. The reason God hardened them in their unbelief was so that he could make them jealous and open up a door for Gentiles. It's absolutely astonishing the way that God's redemptive plan unfolds. And you're going to really enjoy learning about that next week and the following weeks. But for today, the opposite of grace is this. It's what you deserve. The opposite of grace is this. It's what you deserve. 
As we talked about earlier, in the order of salvation, it is not God taking a neutral person and objectively hardening them against the gospel. It is God taking that entire mass of perdition, as Calvin called us, all of lost humanity, and choosing by grace and his foreknowledge to save some and to allow the rest to get what they deserve, which is the hardening of their heart in unbelief. And he does this here with the Jews. Verse 8, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Paul is taking quotations from the Old Testament in Isaiah and in Psalm 69, and he is applying it here. He says, this is the nature of what God has done to them. He has blinded their eyes. He's made them dull. He's made them drunk, as it were, in this kind of stupor so they don't understand. The imagery here at the table is interesting. It's like, uh, it's hard, interpreters don't know exactly what he's, what he's referring to here, but, but it's like the psalmist is saying, may their own table coverings become a snare for them. May, may they get caught up in, in the tablecloth of their own uh, lavish meal. The translation of Psalm 69 in in my Bible has it different in the Old Testament. It doesn't say, bend their backs forever, but it says, may their their loins shake. May may you give them fear, blindness, and unaware of the gospel and the Messiah. That's the opposite of grace. The opposite of grace is leaving you in your sin. The opposite of that grace is leaving you in your hardness of heart. And the opposite of grace is allowing you to continue down that path until you've completely rejected everything. And so the very curse then that David wishes on his enemies originally in Psalm 69, Paul turns it on his own people. David wrote Psalm 69 as a curse against the nations, and God takes that song that is a curse against the nations, and he turns it on his own people. And if you think that's beyond anything that God would do, then let me remind you of one of the most chilling interactions in the New Testament. When our Lord said this in Matthew chapter 13, Take a look. Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 10. Yeah. I know it's popular today, because I've read it in many places, for preachers to say that We should just tell a lot of stories because that's how Jesus taught with parables. As if Jesus used parables as a way to explain things. If you've ever read your Bible, you'll know that's not why Jesus used parables. Jesus didn't use them to help illustrate something so that the masses could understand. He used used parables to hide the truth from people. And that's exactly the accusation he's getting here. So please, if you've never really understood this, understand it today. He says in Matthew 13, beginning in verse 10, Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, Because everyone loves a good story. No. And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. They're accusing him of not being a very good teacher. They're saying, Jesus, we're losing people. The crowd is thinning. And they don't know what you're talking about. And he says, that's because it's only for those who have been given ears to hear. Verse 12, for to the one who has, more will be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart is grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes they have, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see 
with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see and your ears, for they hear. Truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. I hope that sends chills up your spine. I'm sure it did for the disciples. I'm sure that walking back from that interview, James and John and Peter were looking at one another thinking, that is not what I was expecting him to say. But he says, for those of you that do hear and understand, you will be given more. But for those who do not hear, do not understand, it's a sign of a curse against them. So when Paul talks about the nation of Israel, as he's going to over the next several sections in chapter 11, we need to understand that he is talking about the nation. And when he talks about the nation, about the Jews, about the Israelites, he's going to draw a distinction between the nation as a whole and the elect in particular. And I'm going to need you to hold on to that understanding as we unpack the rest of the chapter because it's going to be the key to understanding what he's actually saying here. And in this, revealing to us grace alone, the extent, the application, and sadly, even the opposite of it. But may I remind you, as I did at the beginning, the gospel of grace, properly understood, encourages you to admit that you are far worse than you let on and to trust that God is far more gracious than you could ever imagine. No matter how great the sin, the grace is greater. And the greater the sin, the greater the victory over that sin did Christ accomplish on the cross. May that truth go forward even today to those of you who have never believed that or for those of you who think somehow it's too good to be true. And may today be the day of salvation. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for this truth today. Thankful that we can sing songs that explain it and remind us of it. Thankful that we can hear a word from your truth about it today. Thankful that we can encourage one another with these words, even this afternoon. That you've opened up our eyes to it, that you've given us the word of God in a language that we can understand. We understand, Father, as well, that even these debates among theologians from hundreds of years ago can echo down through time and affect us today. And I pray that we would not be a church wrapped up in controversy over what theologians consider to be important, but rather men and women devoted to the scriptures, seeking truth there first, asking your spirit to guide us and to lead us and to encourage us. May we never be in a position where we feel like we have to answer to any man, but only to you in your revealed word. Father, we are also grateful for this local body and for those whom you have called here to assemble as one and ask that we would do so with great joy as we enter into an obedient act of gathering together for the purpose of building one another up and encouraging one another in love and good deeds. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.